John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Uh, school cross-country running. Uh, the words still have the ability to cause a shudder uh, down my spine. As I recall what it was uh, to go around these you know, four acres of uh, sports pitches in the winter time, uh, going up and down embankments that uh, at the beginning were turf and gradually uh, were transformed into a kind of sheet of slippery mud. I can remember always getting a stitch early on uh, in the race and wanting to quit as quickly as I could. And so it was interesting uh, watching the, the Crown. I don't know if any of you are watching the Netflix uh, series The Crown. Uh, there's a, an episode when Prince Charles is, is at Gordonston and uh, he's not enjoying it terribly much. And uh, they have this thing called The Challenge, and it's an 18 mile glorified cross country. And uh, he's not really up for it. And the headmaster comes along to him and says, You know, you're a sensitive soul. There are other ways of building character. And he, he does decide that he will at least start it, although he doesn't actually complete it. I think if somebody had said to me uh, when I was in fourth year, you are a sensitive soul and there's other ways of building character, I would have jumped at the chance to get out of cross-country. What cross-country is to some of us, uh, the commandments are to us in a like way. Uh, there are other ways of building character. Uh, superseded. Uh, pretty pointless. Uh, now that's a big misunderstanding. I hope none of us have that misapprehension uh, in regard to the commandments. But a lot of people in the church of Jesus Christ today do uh, think that the commandments uh, are not really to be urged upon Christians. And there's a, a number of reasons for this. There's a misinterpretation of Paul. When Paul says, you're no longer under law but under grace, people say, well, uh, the law was for then, grace is for now. We have a different way of approaching the commandments. And there is a, a phobia about appearing legalistic today. Uh, it appears in a number of different ways, but uh, one of the most obvious ways is the, the aversion that the, that the church, ironically in Scotland, has uh, to uh, observe the, the fourth commandment, to keep the, the Lord's Day uh, holy, uh, or in other ways to appear to be over-rigorous in things like uh, sexual morality, purity, what we watch, how we dress, how we relate uh, to the opposite sex. There's also the uh, well-intentioned uh, missionary ideal of contextualizing, in other words, keeping the gap between uh, the church and those outside the church as narrow as possible. But in some ways that's led to uh, a narrowing of the difference in lifestyle, as we no longer have the commandments normative in our lives. And so what we're breeding for these and other reasons is a generation of Christians uh, that are commandment-phobic, which is a contradiction in terms because Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
Well, last time we, we were speaking of the gospel as our motivation for obeying God. Quickly recap. We were saying that uh, the, the driver, the energy, the engine of pleasing God is to work out the implications of what it is to be saved in everyday living. To be absolutely assured of what it is to be a child of God, to let adoption play out in our lives. It will be the expulsive power of a new affection rather than fear and pride and self-interest. In other words, the, what we call uh, the indicative, who you are, will drive the imperative, what you have to do. I am a child of God, and therefore this is an appropriate way to live. And that's not the right way to live, if I am to be who I am. But the question that we're looking at this morning is, where do the commandments fit in? Is it all about preaching the gospel to myself and then automatically I'm going to live a life that pleases God? Uh, is it, as some uh, people speak of today, the sanctification by faith, simply believing more strongly in the gospel, and then automatically you will become more Christ-like? Or is there still a place for preaching the specific commands of God, the laws of God as he has laid down in his word and applying them to our lives. So we're affirming the latter uh, this morning. We're affirming that the commandments have an ongoing normative place in the life of the Christian. That we are to take heed to them and to make gospel-driven effort to obey them. So as we look at uh, this section and Particularly taking a leap from what Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We're going to look at, first of all, uh, the fact that love means obedience. Love means obedience. And then secondly, the way that we obey the commandments is as sons and daughters. And third, obeying the law brings us near to the Father, brings us into communion with the Father. Love means obedience. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Um, now that, that's pretty clear. To my simple mind at least, that's pretty clear. Uh, difficult to kind of dodge the implications of what is being said there. Uh, it wouldn't do, uh, as some groups in the church say and have said in the past, that the Old Testament law has been done away with, and only the things that uh, Jesus commands, and only such of the Ten Commandments as Jesus specifically endorses are binding on us as Christians. Uh, you can't really argue that, because that, that's to drive a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and also between the members of the Trinity, because the God who gave the law to Moses is one with the God who gave the Sermon on the Mount. You can't do uh, these arbitrary acts of, of divvying up like that. But straight up, we need to clarify for ourselves what we mean by the law. What do we mean by the law? Because uh, it's a little bit more complicated than at first sight. And because preachers like to talk in threes, 
uh, we're going to look at the three different types of law there are and the three different ways that the law is used. There are three different types of law. Uh, there is, first of all, what's called the civil law in the Old Testament. Now, civil law are these laws which applied to Israel when she was a nation under God, a theocracy. And some of the laws are the ones that we find uh, the most obscure. Uh, laws, for example, that required you to have a parapet round the, the roof of your house. And it's quite easy, isn't it, to say, well, that doesn't apply now, because you know, we don't have flat houses and so on. But we apply the principle of the civil law to today, so it still has abiding relevance. So we're to care for the safety of others when we are, are engaged in our own schemes of housebuilding, whatever. Laws apply to Israel as a nation state. Laws to do with the buildings. Laws that regulated what they did when they went to war. Laws that preserved the environment. No, when you went to war as Israel, you didn't chop down all the fruit trees. And so you can see how there are implications. Uh, uh, we can derive implications for living today, but the law itself was specific to Israel as a nation-state. And then the ceremonial law, that was another kind of law. All the laws that you have in the Bible about clean and unclean foods, for example, or the, the laws which told you what kind of sacrifices you had to make, what animals you took to the temple, uh, how you offered them to God. And these, these laws were, were telling the people that sin is very serious, and that, uh, as a people, they were to be separate. And that if we're not separated, we're impure, unclean, we're filthy in God's sight, and there are consequences for that. We'll be kept away from God. However, God is merciful, and God will accept all a substitute. And because sin is serious and requires death, the death of a substitute will bring about forgiveness. So, in all the ceremonial law, God is showing Israel, instructing Israel. And the Old Testament becomes like a, a pop-up children's uh, storybook where the realities that are to come are being prefigured in these different uh, rituals and ceremonies and sacrifices. Jesus has come, and we see the reality they were pointing to. However, the ceremonial law still helps us to understand the significance of what Jesus did. And then we have the moral law. And this is what we're talking about uh, when we talk about, when we ask the question, is the law so applicable to Christians? The moral law is primarily the Ten Commandments and the implications of the Ten Commandments. And even in the Old Testament, it's clear that the moral law isn't a category of its own. Because only the moral law is written by the finger of God, and only the moral law is to be set apart in the Ark of the Covenant. There's something quite distinctive about the moral law. How the moral law is relevant to us is also debated. There are three different uses for the moral law, or we could say the Ten Commandments. The first two, uh, most parts of the church had agreed on. The third one is the one where there's uh, debate. 
The law is given to restrain evil. Okay? God's law is not only given to Moses, but we're told by Paul that it's written on the human heart. Uh, everybody, no matter whether they've had a Bible, has an awareness of God's requirements. And that awareness uh, restrains sin and evil. Common grace, uh, the, the means that God gives of human government punishing unlawful behavior is God's way to restrain evil. If God hadn't revealed his law's requirements, the world would be in a much, much worse state than it is. Sin would run riot without the restraining influence of law. Secondly, that the law is given to us to bring us to Jesus. Before you were a Christian, you weren't too bothered, were you, about uh, doing wrong? And then the Holy Spirit came and highlighted the fact that actually your lifestyle was displeasing to God. You became aware of the law. The Ten Commandments uh, came to life and showed you uh, that you need a Savior. And it was through the law that we discovered our need of a Savior. Uh, that's the second use of the law. The third use of the law uh, is that the law continues today to be a rule of life. Uh, it's not a way to life. It won't mean that we're accepted by God, but having been accepted by God, it shows us how to live. Now, uh, as a Reformed Church, we are committed uh, to the third use of the law. Uh, the law as a rule of life. Uh, other churches have gone so much uh, in the way of contrasting the gospel and the law that they uh, would come to, to say that the law is a rule of life. All Christians are agreed, or should be, that we're not under the law to be accepted by God. We're not under the law in that sense, but we're under grace. We're affirming this morning, because of the words of Jesus, that the law uh, still operates uh, to guide us in our lives. Now, I'd say not everybody uh, agrees on this third point, and those who disagree, those who say that the law has no function at all for Christians, uh, usually make a big play of the difference between uh, living by rules and living by relationships. You can almost hear the, uh, the contrast in, in your mind, can't you? Uh, you know, Christian, Christianity is not about living by rules, as though anybody said it was. <laughs> uh, it's about a relationship. Well, of course it is. We're all agreed about that. The question is, is there such a big contrast between uh, rules and relationship, between law and love? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Implies that there's not such a, a big contradistinction as people make out. Funny that the people who are very much against marriage as an institution use the same kind of mindset. I don't need a piece of paper to show that I love you. I don't need to uh, you know, submit to vows of marriage to be in a relationship. 
still need to, you're not showing that you love somebody by entering into a, a, a commitment, a covenant commitment of marriage. But because you're committed, that's what you want to do. You want to declare uh, your commitment to the other, and this is an appropriate way to do it. Uh, you want to be able to, to affirm the questions that the minister will ask when he, he asks you, will you love her in, in for better, for worse, in sickness and health, until death you, uh, do you part? Of course you want to do that. There's no, uh, there's no contradiction. Jesus is saying the same to us, if you love me, your love will be uh, visible. It will take a practical shape. Uh, and the way that you know that shape, you know, the way that you know how to make your love for me visible is you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Love's not a feeling. It's not just words. Love is action. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. God's law isn't opposite to love. And God's law isn't opposite to grace. God's law is not opposite to God's grace. God's law is the expression of his character. And God's character is gracious. And so the law of God reveals the grace of God. That's why the psalmists get excited when they start thinking about the law of God. Uh, it's not that they've got a, an obsession for rules. You know, they're not these kind of sad people that, that love, you know, that could get worked up by, by looking through, uh, you know, a list of a town's bylaws or that kind of thing. They're encountering the living God in his law. God's law reveals his grace. There's nothing ungracious about the law of God. Now that is true for the law that God gave in the Garden of Eden. He gave law in favor to Adam and Eve for their good. He made provision for our first parents in their new environment. He had nothing but their good in view. Uh, he was showing them unmerited favor. They hadn't deserved what God gave them. He lavished it upon them. And then the wily serpent comes in and the, the serpent, Satan, tries to to undermine the goodness of God's law and insinuates that God's law is actually negative to their detriment, that God is keeping something from them which is good. And so he misquotes God and distorts the purpose of God's commandment. And that is legalism. People think it's the other one, antinomianism. Sorry about these, these funny words, but sometimes we need to use funny words if we explain them. And legalism is simply uh, keeping law because we don't believe in God's goodness and we fall back on our own efforts. And the other one, antinomianism, is when we reject God's law and just want to do our own thing. And Eve moved from legalism when she thought, God is not for me, and any good that I need, I'm going to have to obtain myself, to antinomianism, rejecting God's law outright. So the two things are, are close cousins. Uh, 
we only keep God's law in a right spirit when we keep it with his goodness in sight. And when we lose sight of the goodness of God, we fall back on the position that the elder brother had in the parable. You know, uh, you never gave me such a thing as a, as a goat, a kid, that I could celebrate with my friends. All these years I've slaved for you. If any good's going to come to me, I'm going to have to earn it myself because you're not a good father. That's the spirit of legalism. God's not good, and therefore I'll have to earn any good I'm going to enjoy because God is not good and gracious. Love and God's goodness, God's grace aren't opposites. And the second point we make is that we obey our sons and daughters. Right through, uh, as David was reading uh, the, the passage from John 14, there's an unmistakable family feel, isn't there? We're brought into the family when we become Christians. We have God as our Father, and we're brought into the, the very life of the Trinity. And there is that family feel to Jesus urging on us the commandments. Because the commandments are ultimately the Father's commands. Verse 24 says, These words you hear are from the Father who sent me. And the law will only function in your life, if you're a Christian, as it should, if you know the Father and are in a relationship with the Father. You will want to please your father. You know that in the USA, uh, <clears throat> in the South, at least in the USA, uh, children address their fathers as sir. It's a great idea. We could never get our kids to go along with that idea. Uh, but, however, they call me dad. And I know that some children will call their parents, their father, by their first name. My kids are never going to get off with calling me by their first name because there are two reasons why I don't like that. First of all, uh, when they call me dad, that is, it's uh, indicating something. It's indicating a relationship where there's authority, yes? Uh, which wouldn't be the case if they addressed me the way everybody else addresses me, by my first name. But not only authority, there's another element there as well. It implies that they're in a special relationship with me. I am going to bend over backwards to do all I can do for their good, and they are never going to find me unwilling to come to their help when they need it. And all that is implied in the way they come to me. And the same is true when we come to God as our Abba. Two elements are there. Remember we said last time that uh, a Jewish male lived under his father's roof all his life and was under his father's authority. And that, that is there when we call God Abba Father. It's this term of respect and reverence. We're under his roof. Uh, we're under his loving authority. But we're also in that relationship where we can call on him and know that he is for us. He is good towards us. He is committed towards us. And we call that commitment covenant commitment. God is committed to us in a loving covenant. How different that is from the, the spirit of the elder brother. 
who uh, had no notion of the goodness of his father and could only say, all these years I've slaved for you. Again, the Spirit, if I'm going to get anything good, I'm going to have to earn it myself. No concept of the loving benevolence of his father. And so in the covenant, when God covenants, uh, he commands people who are already in. He doesn't give commands that people might get in. You with me? God gives commands to those who are in already. He doesn't give commands that we might get in. The Ten Commandments. What do we have before the Ten Commandments? We have a very, very important preface. Uh, God uh, reminds them, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What is God saying? God is saying, I am your Redeemer. You are my redeemed people. You are in covenant with me. And therefore, your response will be to keep my commandments. Jesus the Son says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says to a people who are already in, this is how your love will take shape. You'll keep my commandments. And, you know, if a believer is being part of God's family, and it certainly is, then wouldn't we expect that there would be family rules? Every family has got rules. So why would God's family be any different? The commandments are God's family rules. They are the ways by which God wants us to honor him. They are the way by which we as his children can give expression uh, to our love for him. Christianity is family religion. God's commands are given in the form of a covenant. You're in, therefore, this is how you live. Rather than a contract, if you do this, you'll be in. There's a world of difference between two. So it's not surprising. When Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, remember the Sermon on the Mount is basically an exposition of the Ten Commandments. When he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, what are we hearing about all the time? We're hearing about our Father. Have a read uh, uh, this, this afternoon of the, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Matthew 5-7, to and see how often the Father is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. It's illuminating. Jesus gives us the rationale for obeying the Father's care. Yeah. When, you, when you do um, things like fasting, you know, don't show off the fact that you're suffering because your Father sees and your Father is your rewarder. Don't be anxious about things. Don't worry about uh, what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat this week. Why? Because... Your father knows, and your father is more than able to supply. Time and time again, it is uh, the fact that we are in relationship with a benevolent, heavenly father that is the grounding of our obedience. God loves you. God is your father. God is your provider. God is the one who sees you. Yield him glad obedience. The Sermon on the Mount is couched in these familial words. We're offering a response of love to our Heavenly Father. The last point we make is that as we do this, we come near to God. 
Obedience to the commandments brings us near to the Father. Jesus uh, is teaching us, and it's an amazing thought, that our obedience pleases the Father, brings joy to the Father, and results in communion with him. Uh, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Verse 23 of chapter 14. Make my our home with him. So the idea is of being at home with the Father, of experiencing our Father's loving approval, of knowing his pleasure. Obeying God brings him pleasure. And we love to know our Father's approval. That's that's really amazing. And ironically, one of, the, one of the barriers to our understanding this is actually another piece of the armor that we have in our sanctification, which is the fact that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Um, we've seen that that's a great comfort to know that we have what we call imputed righteousness. When we trust Jesus, all his goodness clothes us. And so one of, the, one of the mantras that we've used is that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do that will make God love us less. Now that's, that's in reference to our, our positional righteousness in Christ. Our acceptance by God is not threatened or is not reinforced by our behavior. Uh, God accepts us because of our union in Christ. Uh, but as far as God's favor is concerned, uh, it's not true that God uh, is unmoved by our obedience or by our disobedience. A parent, a good parent, will always have the same intensity of love. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll always have the, the same commitment of love towards uh, his children. But there will be times when they grow up when he will be very cross with his children, when he will discipline his children uh, for their good, when they will know that their daddy is not well pleased with them at this particular point because of their, their behavior. Does that mean that their security has suddenly become sugarly in the family? That uh, their acceptance as children is somehow undermined? No, not at all. Uh, And on the other hand, when they are uh, doing things which are are pleasing to their parents, does it mean that there's no pleasure in the heart of a parent as a result of that because they couldn't love them anymore? (laughs) No. Their their loving uh, uh, contribution or, or, or... or, or, or behavior brings a thrill, maybe brings a tear to their parents. It increases their joy. Sometimes we downplay the value of obedience to God, and, and we can misquote things like you know, Isaiah's words that our, our best acts of righteousness are like filthy rags. Well, they are in terms of earning our salvation. But actually, your obedience brings pleasure to your father. Go to most homes where, where there are little children, 
go into the kitchen, what do you see pinned up in the kitchen most often? Uh, you see, you know, those dodgy art, works of art that they've brought back from school or from Sunday school. And why are they hanging there? Why, are they, why on earth are they pinned up on the kitchen uh, board? They're not constables or renoirs. But when the little girl came to her mum with the picture she had drawn at school, it brought joy. It brought pleasure. It maybe brought a tear to the eye. It was an offering of love. And it was accepted with joy. And when we come with our, our ragged obedience to our Father, wonder of wonders, it brings pleasure to our Father's heart. It brings joy to Him. Ponder that because it's not obvious. It's amazing that it should be so. We come as His children, and as we obey Him, we may bring Him joy. And conversely, disobedience may vex our Heavenly Father. Our, our, our disobedience is not going to affect our union with Christ or his attitude towards us, but God may be mightily angry with us and may discipline us to bring us back in line. This is what the Confession of Faith uh, says about that, uh, 11 verse 5. Those who are justified... It says, may by their sins come under God's fatherly displeasure and not have a sense of his presence with them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, ask for forgiveness, and renew their faith and repentance. So, yes, let us rejoice in, in this positional holiness, this imputed righteousness, this security that we have because all of Jesus' goodness has been given to us and we are absolutely secure in, his Father, in our Father's love. Let's also rejoice with wonder that as we obey, we may bring joy to our Father's heart. We may know the sunshine of his approval and we may know he is very near that he has made his home with us. Jesus says, if you love me, my command. May God enable us uh, in joy and by his spirit uh, to do just that. Amen. We're going back to that uh, same psalm, Psalm 119, uh, that so delights.